Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Hi, Omis. Registration is now open for our first back-in-person event since the pandemic. The 2022 I Believe Survivorship Seminar will take place this year in Nashville, Tennessee. Join Acure Insight along with Dr. David Reichstein, Tennessee Retina, top physicians and experts for two days of workshops and educational sessions chock full of info and tools to help you survive and thrive with an ocular melanoma diagnosis. Of course, we'll mix in a bit of Nashville-style fun along the way. For those attending in person, we hope to see you at our welcome reception the evening of October 13th, so please plan your travel accordingly. You can reserve your hotel room using the link provided at the time of registration, or you can book your own preferred nearby favorite hotel. If you're unable to attend in person during the registration, simply select Attend From Home as your option. If you plan to attend in person or online, please register as soon as possible using the link in the show notes or head to tinyurl.com slash I believe 2022. And that's I spelled E-Y-E. After you register, again, just be sure to finalize your travel plans and reserve your room at a hotel there or nearby. Please email contact at acureinsight.org with any registration questions. Share the news with your fellow Omis. We can't wait to finally see you again. Welcome back to the I Believe podcast. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, and I am here with Dr. Tim Murray from Florida. And he is actually fresh from the OR, so I'm going to give him a second, do a couple announcements, and then I am going to introduce him and have him tell us a little about himself. But just to kind of run through the showcase of events coming up, we have three events that are kind of things to keep on your radar this coming six months. First one in the Phoenix area, if you are local to this area in Arizona where I'm from, we would love to have you join us for the Looking for a Cure in Scottsdale. And that event is taking place on September 24th. If you head to lookingforacure.org, you can see the details there. You can get registered. We do have an early registration opportunity where you can get your registration for this event for $25 virtually or in person. That price does go up for registration to $35 on August 1st. Secondly, we do have our I Believe seminar coming up. That's October 14th and 15th, both virtually and in person. It's going to be hosted by Dr. Reichstein in Nashville, Tennessee. And if you are coming in person, obviously we would love to have you. Just keep in mind when your travel plans, make sure you're planning to be there on October 13th for the evening reception if you would like to be at that welcome reception. We look forward to seeing you guys there. Uh, Make sure to head to the link in our bio or head to our website and you can find the registration links there. I will also put those in the show notes of this episode as well as the comments on the live Facebook. Lastly, we have one more 5K coming up, the walk or run for ocular melanoma in Texas, and that is going to be hosted, I believe it's at Trinity Park. It's in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'll double check the details on that because my brain is spacing them. But if you head to, again, lookingforacure.org, you're going to be able to find the details on that and get registered. That event is also virtual and in-person, so you are welcome to travel or you're welcome to walk or run from home in your area of the state of Texas. So thank you again to those in Texas who are helping to get that going and get that organized. That's it for our major announcements. We will just be updating you guys via email and social media on the updates to our registry and the birthday promotion. So thank you guys for all of your participation in that. Uh, Just stay tuned for an update on the data and the kind of the influx of responses that we've had in response to this last month. So thank you again for being there. I think that's all I have for announcements, Dr. Marie. I am going to just kind of briefly introduce you and let people know where you are from. So um, Dr. Murray is from Bascom. Well, I think you said you originally worked at Bascom Palmer, but now you are in private practice and he's currently fresh from the OR having done, I think a total of, if I'm remembering correctly, you said it was like three plaques this week. 
four lasers, three or four lasers, and a couple of nucleations. So he is in the field of operating and helping treat the primary tumor for ocular melanoma. So Dr. Murray, can you just tell us a little about yourself and your background? So Danae, first, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. I think you and I both agree that podcasts like this that can reach out to our, our patients, their families, and occasionally even to other physicians are really, really critical to disseminate current information. So I came out of Johns Hopkins and then University of California, San Francisco, and tumor research and retinal surgical focus um, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I then went to Bascom Palmer in 1991, and I practiced there for almost 22 years. I had a research laboratory for oncology research that was funded by the National Institute of Health and the National Cancer Institute. And my entire practice has really been passionately um, surrounded by how do we best treat patients with eye cancer. And it, it really drives me as it does my patients, their families, and, and, a, and a group of us around the country. So in 10 years ago, I left Bascom Palmer and I opened a private practice. It, gives you a lot more flexibility in taking care of your patients. And it's really been a joy. And I've been very blessed. So patients that were with me at Bascom Palmer um, came with me into private practice. And I think they've appreciated the opportunity. So you and I have the opportunity to talk about small tumors. And I think small ocular melanoma tumors are, in fact, probably the most fascinating aspect of the evolving field of eye cancer care. And we had a recent International Society of Ocular Oncology meeting that was in Leiden. And we had some very interesting presentations focused on small tumors, the best way to treat small tumors, and maybe what the impact of treating small tumors early in the course of the disease will be for our patients. I think this for me, I've been doing this now for three decades. This is probably one of the most exciting times for, for our new patients coming to us with excellent alternatives for best care treatment. And I think you and I also discussed, Danae, how difficult sometimes it is for a patient to know what's the best treatment and how do I find the best doctor? So maybe we can touch on some of those issues as we go forward. So I practice in Miami, Florida, in the United States, and I'm very active in some of the leadership roles for the societies. But I live and breathe taking care of patients with eye cancer and in the hope that we're going to cure all of them eventually. Oh, I feel like that's such an important aspect. And I like what you said about just the idea that the research being presented is showing just how much more potential there is for treating earlier, earlier found tumors. So essentially early detection and that if we can find these small tumors before they get, say, the size of a quarter, then we have a better chance at making sure that that patient has the best outcome, both with their vision as well as potential metastasis. Is that what I'm hearing? That's absolutely correct. So there's really only been one clinical randomized trial in melanoma, and that was the Collaborative Ocular Melanoma Study. And it looked at medium and large tumors in a randomized fashion, and it looked at small tumors in what we call an observational study. And the take-home message from that is that the five-year mortality rates were hugely influenced by tumor size. So 1% mortality at five years for small tumors, 10% mortality at five years for medium tumors, and 30% mortality for large tumors at five years. So what we've clearly learned is you want to have the smallest tumor possible when you're treated. And I think that drives every aspect of our care. Yes. Well, and like, it, I mean, it makes sense to me from a patient perspective because, I mean, had my tumor been found, you know, my tumor or anyone else's who was maybe on the larger side, had it been found sooner and treated sooner, the likelihood of it essentially morphing into something that it became um, would have theoretically been lower. And so just to make sure that patients have that opportunity, that retina specialists who are seeing these kinds of patients who have these smaller tumors, tumors or are suspected of having these smaller tumors, like how do we, how do we get that kind of bridge that gap between, like you said, I think earlier about the standard of care, like how do we, how do we develop a standard of care that says, A, standard of care should be, um, I guess in my opinion, should be every year, anyone and everyone has an eye exam. 
and that it should, it should be as comprehensive as possible and that that should be the standard of care for just eye care. But then at, after that point, if you do have like a nevus or a small melanoma that they're watching or a suspected melanoma, then at what point at what point does the standard of care change so that that is treated as quickly as possible and not allowed to go any further? Because I think that's where the danger is, is what we're, what we're seeing in the research. Well, one of the things I, I like to teach at a physician level, but also when I speak to my patients is that it gets confusing who the doctor is that's looking at you. So some of our patients start off with an optometrist some of our patients start off with an MD ophthalmologist that's a general specialist. Some of our patients start off with a retina specialist, but ultimately almost every patient that gets treated is treated by an ocular oncologist. And that group is incredibly small. So I tell my patients, if you have an anything that someone discusses with you as an atypical lesion, it's an atypical nevus, or it's an atypical small melanoma, I think you at a minimum want to see a retina specialist and that, and then you want to ask the retina specialist, should I be seen by an ocular oncologist? Because I think the retina specialist is the, is best trained to get you to that referral into an ocular oncologist space. So I'm the past president of the American society of retina specialists. And one of the things that I teach my colleagues about is if a lesion has any thickness at all, I think they should be seen by a retina specialist. They should have ultrasound and photography at a minimum, and they should be seen in close follow-up. And close follow-up for me on those really small lesions is, is every six months. It's not once a year. It's not once every five years. It's literally every six months. And if you're uncomfortable with the doctor that you're seeing, then I think that's when you want to go and look for someone that is more specialized in the field. And that's why you want to look for someone that practices in the ocular oncology space. Most of the young ocular oncologists, Danae, that are coming out now are also retina specialists. That's the way the training path has, has shifted. Um, but, it, but retina specialists practice very differently, as do ocular oncologists. So... The, you as a patient, you have to drive your own care. You have to be inquisitive. You have to ask the questions. And you need to realize you're empowered to see anybody you want to. So if you're not getting a yes. good explanation. No, that's such a good point. I, I think that's so important. So I think that I'm never unhappy when I see a lesion that is benign. That's, that's the best news. But most of the time when I see a patient, there is a significant degree of atypia where it's the border between a large nevus or a small melanoma. In the past, Danae, we would say, okay, let's watch that and see what happens. And that was the standard of care. So that standard of care persisted for decades. But now what we're doing is we're looking and we're realizing, particularly being able to use genetic biopsy with gene expression profiling or cytogenetics, that some of these small lesions can have very bad genetics. And that was one of the things that we presented also in Leiden, a group of 20 patients with small tumors, all of whom had class two GEP profiles. So you know we worry so, so much. It was tiny and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been classified as class two 10, 15 years ago before we had the data. Right. Until the genetics were available to us, you would have just said this is an atypical lesion. Most people, most retina specialists, and even some ocular oncologists felt that the small tumors couldn't be class two, that they, that just couldn't happen. And what we're realizing now is that there is a significant proportion of the small tumors that are class two. And remember, class two was scary for us because that was looking at 75% chance of metastasis by five years. So three out of four class two patients can develop a metastatic lesion within five years. That's hugely high. That's, that's unacceptable. So what was interesting, Danae, in the small tumors that had class two, if they were treated definitively, and that's laser therapy in some instances or brachytherapy in others, the mortality rate dropped from 75% metastatic disease incidence to 4%. That is mad. That is so incredible. You said they were able to study. They were able to study twenty patients who had class two small melanomas. That was the Correct. basis of the study. 
Yes. And so when they did this study, did they, I, I'm just kind of backtracking a little bit, but did they do a biopsy before operating on the melanoma to determine it was higher risk before operating? Or did they take a biopsy at the time of brachytherapy treatment or right. laser treatment? So, Danae, that's a really good question. So in most fields in oncology, you always kind of biopsy first before you make a treating decision. But that has never been the case in our field. So we didn't even have really the need for biopsy until this genetic typing for metastatic prognostication happened. So the, the gene typing tells us how, what's your risk of having your tumor spread. That's the single most important thing a patient wants to know. I'm really firmly focused that if you feel strongly enough that you need to biopsy a lesion, then you should treat the lesion. So in, in all those patients, they were biopsied at the time of definitive treatment. And I think that's why their, their mortality rate was so low. It wasn't just that we biopsied them and said, oh, this is bad. It was they were treated and biopsied. The treatment obviously was effective over a five-year window in preventing the tumor growing in the eye and preventing the tumor for 95% of the patients from spreading. That's incredible. Yeah, that's, that's an absolute incredible rate. Um, and to be able to have, have the, um, I guess the, the data to support and show we can see these patients' survival rate was, in, was immensely improved just because, I guess that it's, it's more just because we have the proof that treating it earlier is the result or, you know, this is the result of treating it earlier. Correct. Um, so that is, that's really cool. Um, I feel like that's really cool to hear because, because I think a lot of times patients with smaller melanomas are, are still kind of assumed to have a lower risk because they're small. And so I think, I think it's interesting and it will be, con you know, it'll continue to be interesting to see where research in the actual primary tumor takes us, um, in seeing, you know, I think I saw a presentation early on in my diagnosis from Dr. Harbour, and he was he was referencing how they they had a, a cross section of an eyeball that was class two, and they could see tissue that was registering as class one and class two and class one B. Like there was a mixture of all of these tissues. So then then that calls into question: Okay, if we're pinpricking the eye in this tumor, like are we getting the section that's the most indicative of the outcome? How do we know? Like, and so he was just asking that question, and I'm like, that's that's a really good question. Like how do we know that we got the right section or the side, the section that's the most prominent? Cause we only have one shot. Like, so it's, it's just one of those unique questions. Um, so speaking of that prognosis, um, well, go ahead. So Danae, I'd say one of the things that most of us are doing now is we do what we call a multi-pass fine needle biopsy. So we're, we're actually biopsying multiple sites. And the idea is to try to get a more you know, uniformly diverse sampling of the tumor. We would, we don't want to just say, oh, here's the one part. So you want to get different parts of the tumor through the through a single biopsy. And the way that this test works is it will code to the highest level of the GEP. So if it's if there's any class two tumor in that specimen, it'll code out as class two. So we don't care whether there's some 1A or 1B, we only care if mm -hmm. there's two. So yeah, that's, sure. that's one of the things we've tried to address with that. But remember, I still have colleagues that get up at the podium and say, we haven't made a dent in melanoma mortality in three decades. And they'll say, we have a 50% mortality rate. I, I think that's a disservice because I can promise you that I don't have a 50% mortality rate in my practice. And I don't think we see that for the Shields practice or some of the other large practices across the country. And clearly, we're starting to get very defined information now. And the biggest take home from this is smaller tumors have better outcomes. And not only do we know that that's, that's clinical data, but now we have the genetics of very high-risk small tumors that still have excellent survival outcomes. So I think that was one of the most important things that was presented at this meeting was the first time that we talked about high-risk genetic data with extended five-year follow-up in a group of patients large enough to be able to, to identify the question and the answer that small treatment early makes a difference. 
No, I think that's really important. Um, and, and that's, you know, obviously one of the biggest things that, that we are really passionate about here at Acure Insight is making sure that we spread that awareness, um, both to newer patients, to people who have the potential, or maybe who just don't get their eyes checked. Um, and, but that's really promising to hear. So I do have a question. Um, what would you say then if we're, you know, the general message is best treatment outcomes come when the tumor is found small and when it's treated as quickly as possible. What do you say then to the patients who are in a position where they had a massive tumor that went undetected for who knows how long, and it was treated as quickly as it could be treated, you know, within maybe four weeks of that initial diagnosis, but that it went unnoticed for a a long period of time. Um, Obviously, the genetic makeup of those tumors can still be determined through a biopsy, but but it, it sounds like the risk, at least from what you're saying, like what I hear as a patient is the risk is higher for me because my tumor was so much bigger. And I also had that class two bio, you know, biopsy diagnosis. So, it, I mean, I know it's, it's not like a blanket. Yes, you only have this amount of survival rate, but it's also, it, it's, it's so much more frustrating, I think, to patients who are in a position where their tumor, because of the location, because of maybe an unpracticed doctor who just wasn't sure that what they were looking at for so long, um, end up in a situation with a large tumor that goes undiagnosed for as long as a year two or more. Yeah. So first of all, that just sucks, right? So yes. you can't, you can't do anything about that. You get what you get. I, I do that a lot with my patients to say, we can always think about what we wish had happened, but we need to deal with what has happened. So in a, in a perfect world that doesn't happen. And one of the things to remind people about is probably the most important thing for early detection is having a dilated fundus exam, where drops are put in your eye to dilate your pupil. And so many of the patients that I see have had eye exams, but their pupils haven't been dilated. And that's like looking through the keyhole in a door and thinking you're going to see everything in the room. And then dilating is like opening the door. as, As far as dilation goes, this makes complete sense. This is actually how I explain it to people is like, you can't have an an exam of your eye if you don't open the door or open the window inside your eye. Um, Because I've had people come back and say, well, you know, my doctor told me they don't need to dilate because they're doing this OCT scan. What's your opinion um, on the combination of dilation plus the OCT? Are they necessary to do both? Because I, we hear a lot from people that they feel they've been told they don't need to be dilated because OCT takes the place of that. In my mind, I'm thinking there's still a window. You need to open the window. Danae, you're correct. So the OCT, the current OCT for most OCTs looks at a very small fraction of the back of the eye called the macula. Okay. There are, there's only one system that really allows you to move the OCT to look around the periphery of the eye and almost no retina specialist or group have that technology. So when they're taking an OCT, it's a perfect view of the macula. It sees what the center vision is called the fovea. It'll sometimes overlap with the optic nerve, but it sees a small fraction of the retina. And these tumors can develop in any part of the uveal tract, which means all the way out to the front of the eye. Correct. This is a sphere. Yeah. We have to cover all the areas of the right. sphere. And, and that's, that's the technically challenging part. And to do that without a dilated exam. So I tell my patients, you should have a dilated exam, that indirect, that light that we all hate that the, that the ophthalmologist puts on or the optometrist and looks in your eye that's so bright. That's probably the single most important test. The next most important test is these wide field imaging systems. So many patients now are getting their pictures taken. An example of that's with the Optos, where you get this wide field view. That's very helpful. And we see a couple of patients every other month that something is seen on the Optos picture that no one expected, and they didn't see it during the exam. And then the the third thing you've asked is the OCT. The OCT is, in many ways, the least helpful test for for melanoma, okay? The the OCT looks at the the laser scanning interface to let you see the layers of the retina. What it's very good at is seeing fluid. So in tumors that have fluid, the OCT sees it beautifully, and that's helpful. But the most important exam part is, is to image the tumor itself. And that's, and that's for most of our patients, it's not smack dab in the back of the eye. And if it was, 
life would be easier because when the tumor's there, it often affects the vision in some way. When the tumor's not in the center of the eye, it often doesn't affect the vision in any significant way. And that's how people don't really have symptoms. So two thirds yeah, of patients- Until, until it gets large enough to have symptoms. Correct. And then it's frustrating because you go in your, in your seeing the doctor and suddenly you've got this big tumor. So the take home from that is dilated exam, wide field imaging. Those are the two most important things. And your doctor should do that for you. Okay. Well, and I think that's something that's really important. And and I'm going to be sure as I, you know, convey things on social media, like as we're making awareness posts and things like that, and people are coming back and saying, oh yeah, I just had my retina scanned. I just, I had that image thing, like just to make sure they understand the image is helpful, but we still need to open the window. And I, I feel like this is really helpful too, to have your, to have your input and your explaining of like, okay, these are the levels we need to hit these are the first two that have to happen in order to even get to this one, like for this one to become necessary um, or effective for that matter. So um, now so the thank other you for thing, bringing that down. Yeah. So Danae, the other thing I think is important is that, you know, the advantage of the genetic testing is if you're the lucky person that has a big tumor and it's class one a, so that happens. Okay. So then you can have this sense of maybe it's not as, as, as bad. The second advantage is if you have a class two tumor and the tumor is medium or large like you have had, then then you know that you want to be screened, whole body screening in a different way. Yeah. You have a higher yeah, you've risk. you've got more information. So, so you've got more information. And then the, the next thing we're expecting is that there will ultimately be some type of adjunctive therapy. So if you have a big tumor and it's class two, taking care of the tumor itself is wonderful, but tumor risk for the rest of your body. We've got to find the little things hiding out in your blood. <laughs> Correct. And remember hiding out in your blood or in your liver. So when, when we talk about this, you know, the liver is almost always the preferential site for metastatic disease. So I tell my patients, look, if you're going to get one test, get an MRI of your liver. I don't want you to get a CT because I don't want you to get any additional radiation that you don't need. And CT uses radiation. MRI uses magnetic and radio frequency pulsing, no increased risk of tumor. So that's the test of choice. So that's what I look for. So that's really important. I think that the genetics has helped us a lot. The other thing I'll tell you is I'm totally against the idea of biopsying for genetics without treating the tumor. I think that's a mistake because of all of the things that we've talked about. And I've now seen a number of patients that have come come to our practice because they were confused that they had had a biopsy, but they, but they weren't treated. And one of the patients so they actually- had a biopsy done, like a biopsy done to help diagnose, and then they were not given not a that, treatment but, option? But remember, it's not to help diagnose. So, so today, we don't really biopsy for the diagnosis. We, di we biopsy for the genetics of the tumor for a prognostic risk. And when we did the, the GEP classification, every patient was treated. There, there's not been GEP classification of patients that were biopsied without treatment. So that may in itself be a big risk. So I think we need to be really kind of cautious about, about understanding how complex this is. And then, and then the question is, if you're going to have a small tumor that's going to be treated or biopsied, how should it be treated, right? That's, yes. that's okay. what really so that brings us everybody. to. That brings us to the the main gist of our conversation, but um, no, this was really helpful. I felt like good. it was it was a good conversation for us to yeah. have and very necessary, um, and I feel like very informative too. So I hope the patients listening, we've got a pretty good audience over here on Facebook, and I hope that they are um, pulling from this and able to communicate this to other people who maybe have questions or are are not as well informed. Um, so thank you for clarifying some of these things because I, I mean it helped me. I learned I learned some new things, and um, but like you said regardless of what happens, you have something, it's found, you're then in a retina specialist office or taken to an ocular oncologist and you are presented with options. So you were able to be at the ISOO um, conference and they presented more data on the laser therapy specifically. And I know that that's something you have practiced in. Um, you do brachytherapy, you do a nucleation, you do the laser therapy. Um, so just to kind of clear up some maybe misconceptions um, can you talk to us about, about like what is laser therapy and what's it back, what's its background in the ocular oncology field? 
So, you know, um, lasers have played a role in, in eye care since the beginning. And eye, and eye surgeons have used lasers more intimately than probably any other practice. And one of the first things that was ever treated with a laser was a melanoma. And that first treatment, believe it or not, using a different type of laser occurred in 1950. So we're talking 70 years ago, right? But the problem was it was very hard to focus the energy for the laser appropriately, and it was uncomfortable. It hurt the patients if you did it in the office and not in the operating room. So we, we knew you could do it, but we didn't think that it was helpful. And remember, at that time, there was a big push still that eyes were enucleated. So even, even small melanomas were enucleated. So the shift to go from enucleation to non-enucleation, that took some real focus. Um, the first step actually was lasers, okay? The second step took us into the radiation treatments with either brachytherapy, which is what most, most of us do in the, in, in the developed countries, or charged particle delivery with proton beam. And, you know, brachytherapy gets complex because in the U.S. it can be iodine-125 as the isotope, um, it can be palladium-103, it can be ruthenium. So there, it gets complicated. Now, the most evaluated and used isotope for brachytherapy in the U.S. is iodine-125. So that's the one that there's the most experience with. And you could say, well, why, if, if you know that iodine-125 plaques work, why doesn't everybody get a plaque? And the problem isn't that it doesn't work. So the tumor control rate for iodine-125 plaques at most of the top centers varies between 95 and 99%. So for us, it's right at the 99%. So if we treat 100 patients in a year, one person is going to have a tumor that continues to grow in spite of that. That's an amazingly effective treatment, amazingly effective. But the radiation that kills the cancer also affects other structures in the eye. It affects yeah, the retina. Very, very detrimental. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's not cool, right? Because you get radiation retinopathy that can affect the vision. You get radiation optic neuropathy. So the optic nerve can be damaged. The retina can be damaged. There's a complex type of glaucoma called neovascular glaucoma. So that was really why people were uncertain because the idea was why keep, quote, why keep your eye if, if you're going to have all these problems and you're not going to see so you also know that there's been a huge advance in how to treat radiation complications using injections of anti-VEGF or steroids. So the good news is, is that we can treat a lot more patients with plaques or with proton beam, and then using these injection therapies that really came out of the world of diabetes and macular degeneration, we can keep patients seen. So in the, in the, in the best study in that group, patients maintained better than 2050 vision in almost 85% of patients, and that's driving vision. Now that's not 2020, I mean, it's not perfect, but you know, if you can have an eye that has a tumor and it's 20, 40 or better, that's, that's pretty good. But what drove many people to come back to laser again was all of those radiation issues. And the, and the thought was maybe what we need to do with lasers is pick the right tumors. And maybe because of the issues with how radiation works and how laser radiation works, maybe we should look at smaller tumors. And smaller really means thinner. So we've suggested for the small tumors that if the tumor is under 2.5 millimeters in thickness, at its greatest thickness, that that's an eye that's a candidate for laser. So in the study that was done where they looked at 200 eyes for five years treated with laser, the laser control rate was equal to plaque. It was right at that 99% level. If you treated patients, which is, which is amazing, right? Because you didn't use any radiation. You used a laser light. Well, and if you don't use the radiation, like you said, you don't, I mean, people, like you said, in the, in the practice of ocular anything, like they've been using lasers. That was what I was told when I was told I had a retina tear. They're like, oh yeah, it's super easy. They just do a quick laser fix and you're done. You're out. Obviously that didn't end up being my story, but like, it was very, like very accepted that this was an easy, um, non-invasive and low side effect kind of procedure for, for using a laser and that it was the tool to use 
with the least amount of side effects for approaching the eye, which to me makes total sense because the eye is a small organ. Like we, we don't want to do more damage to it than we have to. Um, and I saw my plaque and my plaque was pretty big. <laughs> um, but like to what you were saying, the laser. But the interesting thing is that the laser that you do in the office is a different intensity laser than the one that works best for the tumor. So yes, in the office, sense. right. So in the office, the control rate with laser was about 75% early. And then when you selected good tumors, it went up to maybe 85%. Most of us think 85 is good, but not good enough. So for me, if I'm looking at treating a small tumor, the minimum level of effect that I want is a 90% control rate. If it's lower than 90%, that that's too far away from a plaque, right? The plaque is too much better. So I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to do that. So the laser that we're talking that had this huge success rate for small tumors, the part of that that is complicated is that's laser that's given in the operating room. So it's not laser in the office, it's laser in the OR. Now plaque is in the OR also, and the nucleation is in the OR. So that's not really the problem. The problem really is that when you have laser surgical procedures, operations are much more complex than a lot of people realize. And everybody thinks that everyone does the operation the same way. But the truth of the matter is that they, that they don't. And you know, if you look at the plaque rates where we're all putting the same plaque on, some institutions have a 70% success rate and some institutions have a 100% success rate. So... I'm the guy that if, if I was not the 100% success rate, I'd be trying to ask around and say, what do you guys do different? How can I be better? And one of the things that has helped some institutions is using the ultrasound in the operating room to be 100% certain that the plaque is here and the tumor is right where it should be and the plaque is perfect. So yeah, the positioning is the accurate. The positioning is precise. so key. Laser has the most intense precision of anything we do. Laser can, can put a spot in and exactly place it. So in the operating room, there is no scatter. There's no spread of the, of the laser beam. It is right where you put it. And what's good about that at the same time is that laser allows you to treat the tumor in a way that you can biopsy it with a lower complication rate. So you're doing the same laser treatment and the biopsy in the single OR setting together for the patient. So I think that's so huge why is, also. Why is that? That Because um, I've, I've had people talk to me before where they said, you know, yeah, my tumor wasn't biopsied because it was considered too small. It was too high of a risk um, to biopsy it or it was too close to something. Why does laser help eliminate that risk or help kind of lower that risk? Well, the thing is that when you're in the operating room at, in doing this precise tumor treatment as, as in the retinal surgery, the vitro retinal surgery that we do, we have incredible precision. We peel the membrane off of the top, we laser the tumor itself, and the needle goes exactly where we want it to go. The eye is pressurized, so we control the potential for bleeding. So it is, it is probably of all the things we do, the most precise procedure that we do. Plaque, you put the plaque on, and then what you're trying to do for most of us is we're biopsying where the plaque is going to go through the wall of the eye into the tumor. That's very effective for tumors that are medium or large. But if a tumor is small, you really have to be precise where, where, that, where that needle goes. Now, some people will do the plaque and then they'll look and put a needle from the outside into the wall of the eye. I don't like that as a retina specialist because it's fairly uncontrolled and it doesn't deal with all of the tissues that you go through. So for me, it's, it, it, it's, um, it's almost you know a no-brainer that if you're going to biopsy a tumor and it's going to be treated for a small tumor, that you want to do that through the process of a retinal surgical approach, having the precision that you need. Now, the downside to laser, Danae, is that if your tumor involves the very center of your vision, then I don't recommend laser because the laser that destroys the tumor also will also destroy the macula. Correct. Yeah. So in that case, I'd rather put a plaque on the eye, know that I'm going to get radiation complications, but I'm giving the patient a chance 
So some mm -hmm. of our patients can be 20, 30 or 20, 40 with macular tumors for decades. We know that can happen, especially now with anti-VEGF. So you need to have a, a, a cancer specialist for the eye that is comfortable with the nucleation if they have to, with brachytherapy or proton beam if they have to, and with the laser technologies and with the ability to biopsy from multiple approaches. That's, we're asking a lot of the oncologists now. It's a, it, we're really well, broadening. And, and like you said at the beginning, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a large scope of, of medical practice to carry. And there's such a small team of people carrying it. So like, I guess I just, I want to hold space for the fact that you are one of, I think roughly 50 or so ocular oncologists in the States at least. Um, I don't know what they are worldwide, but I know that when I was researching to find an ocular oncologist, I was fortunate enough to find one in my area, and that was rare <laughs> because they are not um, easy to come by as far as, as the practice. Um, and, and Danae, sometimes you have to travel. So sometimes... Yes, the, and that's a, that's a thing that we've talked about too. Right. Like as patients, that could be very burdensome right. to not be able to receive adequate care and to then have to travel and for your insurance to maybe deny those claims because they were an out-of-state doctor. There's so many layers to getting treated that can become more, more difficult when you have a rare disease that is not as widely um, practiced as far as like the, the ocular oncology practice. So thank you again, just for being one of those people who's, who's been showing up for three decades in this, in this field and continuing to, you know, improve it and want to make it better on a personal level, um, but also for the rest of, of the community. So thank you. It's, it's a pleasure. I mean, it's an honor to be able to take care of patients that have these really complicated diseases and, it, and you're blessed because you tend to see them forever. So I have patients that have seen me for you know, 31 years since the first day I practiced. Um, and then you see their, their children and sometimes even their grandchildren. <laughs> I am sure that is, that is a fun journey to see all of that. Um, but, but also like that, you know, that just pulls in other questions that I'm sure come up. Um, so back to like some of the things that we were talking about with laser, how would say a, a new patient, um, Let's just pretend a new patient who has been diagnosed, they know they have a small tumor, they know they, based on what you have described, they think they should be eligible for, for laser. Um, how would you suggest that they approach that from a patient to a doctor perspective to approach that with a, maybe a retina specialist or an ocular oncologist who isn't familiar with laser or who is telling them laser is a bad idea, here's why, and maybe they don't have the same information. How would you, how would you suggest that a patient approach a doctor in that physician yeah. space? That's that's the hardest thing for a patient, right? So when when you have a rare disease, first of all, you're hoping that you're finding the right doctor for you. There's the, that's not easy to do, and then you're hoping that your doctor is able to apply every treatment available and will choose what is best for you after talking to you about what the options are. So when when things are moving quickly in a field. There may be only a handful of doctors in the entire United States that are doing something at the level that we're talking about. And that's tough because then you've got to get to one of those doctors or you need to understand that you know, your doctor is going to use what they believe is best. One of the things that I think is important is to realize how quickly this field has changed. So what was, what was the surgery we did a decade ago is not the surgery that we do now. And laser technology, even from five years ago, is different from laser technology now. You know, OCT imaging and anti-VEGF, we've had them for a decade. So there's, there, I mean, we're blessed that the field moves quickly, but it's, a, it's also sometimes a curse for our patients because you, you want to think your doctor has everything and, and they may or may not. And this is well, the yeah, and that's a good point that it, if it does move so quickly and not all doctors are maybe universally able to travel and be at things like ISOO or be at these different conventions where they're informed of updates to practices and updates to procedures and how, you know, this has seen success. Here's how, here's why, here's where to train. All of those factors come into play. And, and again, when you have a small field of doctors who are trying to treat a very unique, but highly in demand level of patients that would be that would be tricky to balance that. I can I can imagine that. Um, so let's um, let's just assume though that someone is is contemplating laser. Um, 
what would you say would be, I guess, just to kind of narrow it down or to sum it up, what would be the, the main indicators that they should, should bring that up to their doctor and say, Hey, I think laser needs to be explored here. If you can't explore it with me, then I'm going to go find someone who can right. like, where, where would they need to kind of have that checkbox of like items? So I totally respect a patient that does that. Okay. Because, because I think that's a patient advocating for themselves I tell my patients that I see, I'm never unhappy if you get a second opinion, just make sure the person is at least at least as good as I am. So getting a bad second opinion is not a second opinion. You need to go. And so I'll usually say, here's here's the five people in the US that I think you could see. Um, and and that that can be helpful, but that's also hard. So, and, and I think that, um, I think that the key is that this area, especially laser technologies, is the is the most rapidly shifting part of our field. So it, it used to be the genetics where, where very few people were doing genetics, and now virtually everyone does genetics um, of their melanoma patients, which I think is great. But it but it also emphasizes that if you're right at the at the pivot point where a therapy is going to to be evaluated, it becomes difficult to find the person to do that. Um, so I think they could reach out to you and I'm happy if you have, if patients do that, that you reach out to me and I could help give them some guidance. But I think okay. the small group of people that are ocular oncologists, there's an even smaller group that are able to do effective laser treatment. So it, that's a subset of a subset of that's a, a tricky, really yes, yeah. tricky box tricky. inside a box inside a box. Correct. Um, and then, and then so one thing to talk about. So for those people though, it it's, I guess, just to kind of go back to my original question, um, sorry, but the, the main piece is that this tumor needs to be two and a half millimeters or smaller in thickness. Correct. And that is what designates it as small. So correct. So less than um, two. I guess I'm just wanting to clarify: is is there a small in the other directions that is kind of a, a window that they should be aiming for? So usually, you know, we we look at tumor the what we call the largest basal dimension. How what's the widest point of the tumor? The, the two dimensions that are most important. The number one dimension is the thickness, which is the apical height. Where is it the thickest? And then how wide is it at the largest point? So tumors aren't circles, right? So when you look. It's it, one part can be a lot wider and one part can be smaller. We only care about the widest part. And, and for me, at this point, I've been able to effectively laser tumors that are under 16 millimeters in largest basal dimension. That's a big, okay. that's big. That's a big tumor. That's, that's big. I mean, that's it's more still, than a it's centimeter. Still, it's still not considered a large tumor if it's under 16 and it's, and it's less. If it's under 16 and it's less than 2.5, that falls into what most people think of as an atypical small medium tumor. So the base is kind of a medium tumor, but the apex is small. And then, then the third thing, um, Danae, for laser is you don't want it to involve the center part of vision. If it involves the, the fovea, the center part of the macula, then I, I wouldn't laser that because you're going to have an immediate loss of vision. Um, and people did a clinical trial in advanced macular degeneration where they lasered the center. And they did that because the patients immediately lost vision. But by three years, the, the vision that they had at three years was better if you ruined their vision at the, at the treatment. So when I looked at that, I was like, um, I don't want to be the one that, that ruins my patient's treatment. I was, I was like, I won't do that. There are ways that I can treat you that keep your vision and, and I'm not going to take your vision away to, to save some vision for you in three years. So people, people have looked at that very differently, but there actually was a clinical trial that did that in macular degeneration. So for me, I, I would say your tumor has to be less than 16 millimeters in the, in the largest diameter, uh, basal diameter, less than 2.5 and doesn't involve the fovea. Those three. Okay, so those are the three main things. Correct. So it's it's the location and the the depth or the thickness and the size across the base. Right. Um, okay. And then if they do want to do that and they do want to pursue this and they find, um, oh, I guess aside from yourself, do you have do you have a list that you could give us or that you could either send it to us via email or that you could just kind of spout off a couple names of doctors that people could take down notes? I'll send you a I'll send you a, a couple. 
because there's only a handful of people doing this. Um, and I think that one of the things that's going to happen is that we're training this next generation of oncologists, and most of them are being trained first as retina specialists. So that the idea of doing retina surgery as they treat the tumor, they're much, much more comfortable with that. So some of our older colleagues, they didn't do really retinal surgery. They did oncology surgery, but it wasn't involving retina. So they're a little bit less comfortable. So that's interesting that, that there's a change in training that may change the approach to treatment. But Danae, the oh, most I important, like that's an important thing, distinction though, right? But the important thing to, to say, and I say this over and over again, is you need a doctor that gets the diagnosis right. So that's the single most important thing. So if you're at all uncertain that your doctor has your diagnosis well-established, definitely seek a second opinion. Because I can tell you, I get a number of patients that are told they have one tumor when in fact it's another tumor. And so if you think it's one thing and it's another, there's no way you can effectively treat that. So diagnosis is critical. And the ability to image small tumors is the most challenging part of our imaging. So ultrasound of a tumor that's, that's less than 2.5 millimeters is technically challenging. And you need to have a very good team that does that with you. Well, that makes sense to me. Um, makes sense. If it's smaller, it would be harder to see um, right. on imaging and harder to identify um, and harder to, you know, pick all of the things that you need to, to check off the boxes to say, oh yes, this is for sure a melanoma. Um, so, all right. Well, I feel like that was really helpful and I look forward to seeing, you know, just having a couple more names that we can put in the show notes as potential people to, for people to look for if they want that opinion of, am I, a, am I really a candidate for laser? I'm, I'm hearing that I should be, but am I really a candidate in, you know, your doctor, your opinion, or in some of these other doctors around the country? Um, so thank you for that. I am just looking really quick and, um, we're going to just take a short minute. We're getting lots of feedback on the live from just people saying, um, that they are just glad to have the information. They're feeling well-informed. So thank you guys for being live. Um, we did have a question here from Susan. It says anti, what is, what is anti-VEGF? Anti-VEGF. V-E-G-F. So Susan, anti-VEGF is a, a drug molecule that binds something called VEGF, and it has revolutionized medical care for blinding diseases of the eye, particularly wet macular degeneration, diabetic macular edema, and, and ocular strokes, which are called central or hemi or branch retinal vein occlusions. And it's that advanced because what it does is it goes in and it seals the blood vessels and it closes them down and it stops them from leaking. So people that were literally 2,400 can be 2,040 in a week. It is, it is remarkable. And the way you follow how you do those injection therapies, it's an injection into the eye, is usually with OCT, which we talked about a little earlier. So the anti-VEGF molecule is really key. And as you can imagine, there's no studies in, in, in eye cancer patients. So what we've done is taken the studies from macular degeneration and from diabetes and from stroke, and we said, look, if it works there, shouldn't possibly work in our tumor patients. And so that's how we came to use that for radiation leakage, for radiation retinopathy and maculopathy. And it's even more interesting because the first time this drug was developed, the doctor that, that developed this drug, um, Judith Forgman, developed it as a cancer treatment for colon cancer. It doesn't work very well for that, but it, but it, <laughs> but it has saved thousands of people from going blind in the United States alone. So um, the VEGF seems like something that we would probably need maybe a whole other episode to be able to cover fully. Um, so. But in general, is the VEGF just part of the, what I'm hearing is that it's part of the um, radioactive retinopathy prevention. Right. Like it's part of the process that can be used to help present or prevent uh, radiation damage to the eye from from damaging the vision. So, so I think that's really interesting, Nate, because when we did the first studies, we waited till there was damage. And then we used the drug after there was the minimalist amount of damage. 
Um, some of the doctors now um, are suggesting what you've just said. Why wait till there's damage? Maybe what we should do is right from the beginning of the plaque treatment, we should treat we patients We should just assume with... the damage is going to come. Correct. We used radiation. <laughs> the damage is going to come. We're not going to wait to try Correct. to put a Band-Aid on it later. We're going to be proactive. But what's um, kind of so nice I guess for the, the... Susan's... Is it Susan? Yeah. Su or Susan, Sharon, Sharon, Susan. Susan is asking the question, basically, does it mean that I would have fewer shots? So is the VEGF um, an actual shot to the eye or is it a treatment that happens maybe once or, you know, like at the initial part? Right. So, so VEGF is the, is the thing in the eye that causes the damage and the anti-VEGF is the molecule that we inject that binds the VEGF and, and stops it from working and saves the eye. The problem with that is, is that she's absolutely correct that in most cases that process is ongoing. So you're going to need to be injected. And what varies patient to patient is the frequency between injections. So when we did the first study, we found that most patients have to be injected about every six weeks. Some patients get injected every three weeks, and some patients get one injection and never have to be injected again. So the variability is huge. And one of the things to take home from that is you really need to personalize the care to that unique patient. There is not one size fits all for this. It really has to be micro adjusted for each patient. No, across the board, I feel like in so many different aspects. Um, I feel like that helps to answer that question. Um, let's see, I'm looking to see if I see any other questions through here. Uh, as we are wrapping up, you guys, we probably have maybe two to three minutes. So if there's one more question that comes through in the chat, I can ask that question um, and I'll just wait for just a brief minute. Um, but if you guys have any specific questions for Dr. Murray, he would absolutely be happy to answer them here if we can. And um, Dr. Murray, just for the sake of time, if we do have other questions come as people listen either to the podcast or to the live recording, um, can I just, like, send those on to you and ask for a response back so that I can Of course respond? you can. Okay, lovely. So just for the sake of time, um, if people if people do have questions, any of you have questions directly for Dr. Murray or about laser treatments, um, about any of the things that we talked about, then I would be happy to forward those on to him in the future. So. I'll just wait just a quick second and see if I see anything else come through. So, Danae, why no, we're I don't, why I don't you're waiting? Fast. So, first yes. of all, thanks for having me. But second of all, I think the key point here is try to treat early. Small tumors better than any other size. Know that there are options to treatment. Know that even with bad genetics, small tumors can do incredibly well. Um, be excited for the future for the patients that are come that are going to come to us in in the future where we can do things that we weren't ever able to do before. I think that's amazing. Um, so we had a question come in and I guess this, this is kind of a little bit more generalized question, but it just says if the cancer is found in my liver, what treatments are out there or is every, every person different? Um, so John to that question, um, I think that's more of a generalized uveal melanoma medical oncology question, but I, I guess I would, I would say you need to see a uveal melanoma medical oncologist. So Dr. Murray, would you agree with that statement? <laughs> Yeah, so I think that as hard as it is to find an ocular oncologist, medical oncologists that do melanoma are a dime a dozen. I live in Florida. There are so many people with cutaneous skin melanoma, but we need to remember that skin melanoma is not eye melanoma. You need to find an eye melanoma specialist, and, and that's worth looking for. The FDA has the first approved therapy for metastatic disease. There are huge options for patients now, but every one of the options is really individualized to each patient. So I, and, and we'll have that discussion in my office, but I'm always going to defer to the medical specialist. And I have just a handful of people that I, that I really let my patients see um, because I think that, that this is incredibly complicated and you want really the person that's on the cutting edge of treatment. Yeah, for sure. You want, you want someone who's in the know with the clinical trials. You want someone who is informed. Um, so defer to a uveal melanoma medical oncologist referred that you're referred to by your ocular oncologist, someone who is, they know and trust in the field. Um, and if your ocular oncologist doesn't know, they should reach out to you, Danae, and you can reach out to, to me and I'm happy to give them guidance too. 
Wonderful. Okay. And just for um, for reference, for anyone listening, um, and for, for John, as you're asking this question, we do have a physician finder on our website, and it can help to link you up with um, with some of those specific specialty oncologists, the ocular oncologists, um, and just with helping to find the right kind of doctor in your area. And if for some reason you are finding that you're having difficulty finding that specialized person to go to, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Um, we are, we have a network of doctors and with uh, with researchers, and we are more than happy to try to do some digging or to put it out there so that we can get the right information to you. Um, well, Dr. Murray, I really appreciate you being here, and thank you guys for being here live. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I like I said, I feel like I learned so much from from this uh, this interview alone. So thank you again for being here. Is there anything that you want to say just as we wrap up, other than goodbye? <laughs> I just want to thank your organization at Cure Insight because this reaches people in ways that nothing else does. And I think you need to empower your patient. And then if you are the patient yourself, and, and this is a huge resource for finding information relative to your care. So thanks for letting me participate. I would do it again anytime, Danae. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Murray. Thank you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences and produced by Agora Media. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.